surprised to see me here? I knew you'd come. Morton once told me I could never be like him. Now I understand why. Wouldn't have bothered him knowing you were around somewhere alive. So you found out you're not a businessman after all. Just a man. An ancient race. Other mortals will be along, and they'll kill it off. Future don't matter to us. Nothing matters now, not the land, not the money, not the woman. I came here to see you. Because I know that now you'll tell me what you're after. Welcome to I Know Movies and You Don't. This is Season 3, first episode of Season 3. We, we made it through 100 episodes so far. This is Episode 101 that'll be coming out, and I'm utterly surprised it's even a thing. I'm utterly surprised that uh, p- people keep coming back and like are actually having fun doing this. This is actually quite, uh, you know... Uh, a thrilling surprise for me and it's it's really encouraging to have voices and and friends to come on and share in this experience and share in the experience of films and trying to learn more about them understand them you know collectively understand them and i think that's the whole point i haven't reiterated the point of the show in a while i know movies and you don't is not a declaration like i i absolutely do not know movies over a lot of people but it is kind of a life goal and journey and uh, to understand these kinds of movies to revisit 
explore new ones and by the time i can you know die and say i know movies and perhaps the other people don't and then we can collectively go through this journey that's what the process of the show is and it's been it's been a really great experience and you know the last two seasons you know cult kind of fashioned itself as because it's a celebratory nature of film because it has these pockets of fandom that lift these these otherwise marginalized films to kind of popularity and that was kind of an easy one to pull a lot of people and their passions noir i moved into for season two because it is probably my favorite genre um, because it, it, it combines a lot of moral pondering, it ap- ap- applies a kind of a realistic sense of the world that perhaps things can't be in control, you can't change yourself, it's a fatalistic quality, and it, it really, because I'm, I'm kind of a, I, I call it a cynical realist, uh, it kind of emboldens my uh, my perspective, and so I really like the noir. But, you know, they're, rivaling that love for that genre goes back and forth with the one we're venturing this season is the western is it it arguably could be my favorite genre mostly because it 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 has at its core a backdrop of drama that is a very particular i mean it is the really the original and probably the only american truly american genre that was developed and why was because at the time where cinema and and history were kind of culminating to a depiction one, the first american complex narrative was the great train robbery in 1903 and you can't necessarily separate the history of american film and its lore uh between this time of what would be manifest destiny and what was that it was a cultural embodiment of kind of a religious fervor of enlightenment mentality and p- pushing people to kind of uh, self-discovery and expansionism and there are good things about that there are bad things about that you see that you know you you see it lauded and praised in a lot of john ford's romanticized attitudes in in classic sense that the western is a place where people uh, you know tame the land tame the wild uh you know discover themselves become better and uh accepted by the communities uh or you see it in revisionist uh senses in the revisionist sense that you 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 criticize and uh see that that through that expansionism through that self-interest perhaps the 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 idea of societies perhaps the idea of of civilization is kind of a veil that is hiding what's really unique within man is that they are a flawed entity and so for me on a philosophical level the western is sort of uh, a great template for me to to venture and discuss and uh today we're to open the season we're talking about once upon a time in the west and why why once upon a time in the west uh and not necessarily any of the other plentiful uh options to talk about for the western well once upon a time in the west is a very intriguing uh launching point for the western and really it was kind of a filtering of all said influences from previous uh from previous westerns uh, basically a love letter to john ford but also kind of a postmodern criticism of its assumed romantic ideals and you know sergio leone who directed it uh was was a pioneer of the spaghetti western he didn't do the first spaghetti western but uh, you you would not be able to separate his name from the the proposed italian uh western genre because he kind of uh, epitomized it with his man with no name trilogy and actually but after he did it he he said he was never going to do a western again and uh it it took paramount giving him 
an insane amount of money. And basically, and and that was kind of enough. I mean, even even United Artists said we, they wanted to have him do a western with uh, Charlton Heston, Kirk Douglas, and Rock Hudson, and he turned them down. He did not want to do a western anymore. But when Paramount said, "We'll give you access to uh, Henry Fonda," it was his favorite actor of all time. So the opportunity presented itself, and so he he decided to do. A Western again and Once Upon a Time in the West has its foot in kind of a love letter to American cinema there there it's basically uh, each scene is almost its own referencing point to a film of the past some of the characters are their own film references they, they are a combination of a lot of different aspects of classic Westerns but then at the same point he uses kind of a raw gritty backdrop and an unceremonious look at uh, what the West kind of was and its lawlessness and its violence and and continues that sort of uh, criticism from his man with no name trilogy into this and it ushers in kind of a, a, a turning point a popular and uh, bigger budget and reflective turning point in a postmodern sense for the Western. And I'm sorry I'm so verbose, but I really wanted to kind of give a template on on why we're doing this and why this film. And I really do think it's a special film. I personally, I would probably say, uh, through a lot of reflection, it's my favorite Western of all time. And I'm excited to discuss it today. Uh, with three guests, it's kind of like a panel discussion. It's one of those rare opportunities where I get everybody in, in, you know, in outside. So if you've heard planes, if you've heard our babbling brook of the pool, I apologize, but uh, you know that's what 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 this is, and I, I'm uh, you know I th- I think this is a very nice setting for it. But let me introduce my guests and get get their uh, opinions or their their initial um, I guess passions for this particular film. To to my left, my immediate left is Mr. Josh Carter. Been on two seasons now. You're you're now entering season three with me. I thank mm-hmm. you. How are you, sir? I'm good. I mean, do we even need to talk about the movie now? You just kind of summed it up. <laughs> <laughs> The whole discussion. No, there's plenty more to talk about. There's plenty more to talk about. Um, Josh, so so again, I I thank you for coming back on and and being such a, you know, I've enjoyed your insight these last two seasons. But uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, when when I put out the list, uh, this was one that really caught your attention, and this is one that we've even discussed uh, between ourselves. Yeah. Uh, What what is your relationship with Once Upon a Time in the West, and why do you love it? Uh, well, you're right. It's the greatest Western of all time. It I've, When I first saw it, I didn't like it. Sure, yeah. Uh, I, I saw it too young, and I grew up watching, you know, the John Ford Westerns, and my dad's favorite movie was Tombstone, and so I was very inundated with a specific type of Western. And I this came on AMC or something one weekend, and I was like, oh, great, a, a Western. And watched it and was like, this is long, this is slow, like, it's just not good and um it's even very different from the man with no name trilogy like that one's more quirky and uh, up-tempo yeah. than this one this one's very somber yeah. and, and slow and, yeah. and purposely so yeah. mm-hmm. and it's yeah it, it thankfully you know the more I, j- I kept coming back to it and because it's just so goddamn gorgeous mm-hmm. that i just kept watching it watching it and just like slowly started to pick it apart and just fell in love with it as a film i mean it's just it's pure cinematic poetry. It really is. Yeah, th- this is, uh, and it was a kind of an ushering in of the new kind of elegiac po- poetry of like Sam Peckinpah, this kind of new, uh, Robert Altman with McCabe and Mrs. Miller. This is really kind of a, 
a transcendental film and how it pushed kind of the boundaries of the of the genre and and mm-hmm. and, and kind of an ode and and appreciation for what came before it. So it, it, it is a wonderful piece in that way. Yeah, it, it flips the genre on its head. Absolutely. Over over to yonder, Mrs. Christy Schimmick. I've uh, been been on noir now, now western, mm-hmm. but uh, t- we we discovered each other a little too late uh, t- for, for you to be on on cult. But uh, welcome to the show. Um, Once upon a time in the west. Why why do you love it? Well, I also grew up with westerns. My grandfather loved westerns, so whenever I came over to see my grandparents, me and him would sit and watch westerns i mean every time i just that's the memory i think of and um so i saw once upon a time in the west quite young as well um but it is 100 percent my type of movie i've always loved slow dramatic i mean the opener on this movie alone oh I yeah mean, it's just my thing 100 percent. so so i loved it but i don't think i really understood it until i was an adult saw it again loved it even more i mean like you guys have been saying, it's one of the best westerns. I can't even think of one that I love more than this movie. So I was excited to come on today. Well, I'm glad to have you. Yeah, there, there's something really operatic about mm-hmm. it. Like, I mean, yeah. I mean, there, there, there were instances of that, like flourishes within yeah. his earlier works. But I mean, this one is truly an operatic piece of, yeah. of drama and and really kind of in, in, a, in a future episode, which which it's difficult because this is not the first one recorded. But this but we, we talked about Andre Bazine talked about the development of the super Western mm. and that the super Western was kind of using the ideas of Greek mythology and applying it to the West and heightening the heroes, heightening the villains, heightening those dynamics. And this one is really about that. Like there's yeah. almost something, a superhero quality. It, it has a comic book kind of finesse to how it's portraying their characters. They're larger than life. Mm-hmm. I mean, when they shoot somebody, they could go flying back three yeah. feet. Uh, and there's, so there's something, it's like taking the mythology of the West that was originally done through these shows, these these traveling shows in Europe and America, and and making them true heroes and true villains of of an operatic degree, so mm-hmm. it, it's really f- fantastic to watch and yeah. and be part of it. Um, and also, last guest but not least, well, that means somebody else is the least. None of you are the least. <laughs> uh, I just wanna <laughs> I'll be the least. I'll take it. That's fine. <laughs> that's, no, none of you are the I least. Up last. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's true. But it, it wasn't your fault. They missed your order on coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Mr. Ben McGinley, welcome back. Oh, three seasons now. How are you? I'm doing well. Really happy to be on this episode, especially. Yeah, I mean, what what is your relationship with Once Upon a Time in the West? I actually, did, for some reason, I didn't see this movie when I was young. I think I saw it when I was in my mid-20s. And I immediately saw it for what it was, that it was great. And I loved it right away. Like, I had seen all of Sergio Leone's other Westerns at that point already. I had been a huge Western fan, like, my whole life. I remember when I was a kid... I used to watch um, old reruns of the show Wild Wild West, mm-hmm. uh, the the good '60s TV show one, not the Will Smith. Although I did see that too. <laughs> Didn't we all? Yeah. One, of, one of Kenneth Branagh's greatest performances. Oh, I know, right? Yeah, man. But yeah, this movie. Giant mechanical spiders. <laughs> yep. This movie is fantastic, and like I don't say this very often. Like we've talked about movies so much, but I don't say this very often. This is a masterpiece yeah. of mm-hmm. cinema. And uh, a movie that's clearly stood the test of time because at the time that this came out, West, even though like Sergio Leone was so popular with his Man With No Name trilogy, like Westerns were still dying as a genre. Uh, and they kind of died later in the 70s um, where it wasn't a main genre of like worldwide cinema. But this movie is just so special and so memorable. 
and uh, it's just really cool to be talking about it today. No, it, it's really a truly special kind of film, and I think anybody who really taps into its, it, it, I mean, just its its flourish, its romantic stylings, I mean, it is truly, it, some people have described Sergio Leone as someone being style over substance, but I think he is one of those that utilizes style to enhance the substantive qualities of his characters, mm-hmm. because his characters, while symbolic in a lot of ways, I think that they are they, they they transcend that because and maybe it's because of how he shoots it, how uh, you know the Neil Morricone score. I mean, the leap motifs that come to each character that they have their own theme kind of generates a, 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 an emotion in you when you when you see them, and and because they are repetitious and they have different dynamics whenever the music comes in. I mean, it really brings kind of an emotional connection to this, these characters that otherwise could be a little cold because of how it's a kind of overly technical. But I, I think that, that there's a, a masterful use of it in this film. Totally. I mean, I, every time Cheyenne's theme starts to play, even before he appears on screen, I get excited because I'm like, oh, yeah, that character. <laughs> yeah. Can't wait for him to come back. It is truly great. And, and what's, what's really great, and, I, and maybe we could start the conversation really with the opening of the film, is that it's done in pure, almost pure silence. No music is really played except for the haunting little uh, judgment theme of the harmonica once it breaks through. But it's that, that comes about 10 minutes, like yeah. uh, eight, minutes, eight. Eight minutes, 8 minutes into minutes, it. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, it's a great opening. I mean, it really establishes the tone of the film and, uh, and, and that it's, it's both a subversion but also a loving homage to another film was Fred Zinneman's High Noon. And it was tr- taking three gunmen and putting them at, you know, the waiting it out in the real time of waiting for this, this, uh, <laughs> this, this train to arrive because there's, they're, they're there to kill a man. And you, you get, it, there's no words really, like there's a couple words spoken, the, the affable, uh, poor, uh, train, <laughs> train operator with a selling tickets gets like ushered in, like, and, and and you can just so everybody knows if you if if you've never seen a spaghetti western and you're a little uh, put off by the overdubbing, I mean you need to understand they they shot they shot it with so many different actors from different countries. Yeah. They all spoke different languages and they uh, shot it usually with no sound and they would o- dub in the sound later. And so it's a very weird. It, it is a bit, a bit odd. Actually, do you, do you guys mind that or did it throw you off when you first time you saw a spaghetti western? Because it, it is very. It, it can throw you off, I think, just a bit. Not at all for me. I mean, that was kind of part of the appeal. Mm-hmm. I really got into spaghetti westerns around the time. I was getting really into Tarantino and Kill Bill uh, Volume 1 had come out. And that's when I really d- started to do deep dives into uh, spaghetti westerns. And so that was kind of part of the appeal, the kind of semi-cheesy nature of them, not to, not to take themselves too seriously. Yeah. Yeah, I think once you um, get used to foreign films, so whenever you were introduced to that idea, you know, you get more used to the dubbing and more used to the re-records. And I think, you know, uh, for me, I, I think it's a part of it. I agree. It's a part of the essence of the film. I had already seen like a million uh, martial arts films and their dubbing is just horrible so that I didn't even notice. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fair. That's fair. Well, I mean, and, and so when you're, when you're getting it, my goodness. So just so everybody knows, there's a dog now and he's just <laughs> up in everybody's, yeah, up in everybody's uh, business and his tail 
can be heard in the reverb of hitting the the, <laughs> the, the table. But uh, with, with the opening, it, it is it gets you right in the mood because it it is uh, again it's kind of a parody of High Noon because it's mocking all the kind of in, in the incessant buzzing of the fly, the 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 rotating. Uh, the, what, what, the windmill. What, yeah, the windmill up, and it re- and then the dripping on a uh, 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 Woody uh, Woody Strode's uh, hat, and that he drinks w- the water, and it's all that like little monotony that they're mocking, but it really kind of is fleshing out the what this genre is, kind of a, a an ode to the classics, a quirky kind of ushering in of something new, which I mean that's really what it is. That whole scene is about bringing in something mm-hmm. new and ushering a new kind of sense of the West and kind of propelling something forward. I didn't know, did any of you know that uh, there was problems with the casting of the three gunmen at the, yes, at the beginning? I did. Yeah, you know, you know the story, Ben? You want to tell it? Uh, I, I, if it's the same story that I'm thinking, but originally it, uh, Leone wanted to have Clint Eastwood, Eli Wallach, and uh, Lee Van Cleef yeah. in the three roles, and <laughs> they were actually kind of tempted to do it. Well, Lee like, Van Cleef and Eli Wallach agreed. Yeah. yeah and but then when they found out that they got killed in the first 10 minutes, they were like, Nah, we're not doing it. <laughs> well, no, uh, they, they, I think they were okay with that. Uh, apparently, Clint Eastwood had a public falling out with Sergio Leone, um, yeah. you know, after, after Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And so they, they were on kind of bad terms. And so they, uh, he, he wouldn't agree to do it. And so if he didn't have all three, because he really wanted to have that, uh, a kind of a self reference of, yeah killing off the old past and moving on to the new but once he didn't have that he he moved on and so you have three wonderful character actors from the west i mean uh, jack elam uh woody strode and i'm forgetting the other guy uh, al mullick al mullick yeah mullick he's got a great story on this film too. Yeah, oh I, I would love to hear it oh he he committed suicide during the making of this film he, oh geez he jumped out of the the like the fourth floor of his hotel in costume oh and uh, when he hit the ground, they, they all went to him. Uh, Sergio Leone was only concerned about getting the costume because they needed it oh instead dear. of getting to the hospital. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, man. That shows, I mean, that that is, I mean, when you hear about, like, directors in the, back in the day yeah. and how obsessive they get with their work, and, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it, it, it does kind of turn them off from a humanist ability like there there was something about uh, when when doing my research for another western for this season is El Topo Mm -hmm. when Hodorowsky I mean he put it's his actual child in the film and he's naked and has him bury a picture of his own actual mother and is like your mother's dead bury your picture and their mother wasn't dead his mother wasn't dead and he was traumatized from the film and and it, it, it after it was done he realized oh for the sake of my art I became a monster um, it's that's interesting because I can see that in a lot of filmmakers how how they get obsessed with their work. Mm-hmm. It's a movie first, everybody else second. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, that's actually really troubling. I didn't realize he committed suicide. Yeah, oof, that's that's depressing. And he was also in the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. He was the one-armed yeah. bandit. Yeah, and, like they were all in like westerns before. They were all like well-known character actors in westerns. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Woody yeah. Strode especially. Yeah, he's in. Um, 
Man with Man from Liberty, Sh- yeah, yeah, shot Man Liberty shot Liberty Valance. Yeah. It's which is another great one. Actually, yeah, that's one of the movies that's highly referenced in this film mm-hmm. is the the auction scene is actually a, an homage to the election scene mm-hmm. of of uh, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Yeah, no, all these guys, Jack Elam yeah. was a t- TV actor, but he was in Vera Cruz. Was, we should totally watch Vera Cruz and do an episode on it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we probably should, huh, Devin? <laughs> <laughs> We've already done it. <laughs> As I said, I take it, you guys have already recorded it. We've already done it. <laughs> Which is, yeah, I mean, Vera Cruz, just so everybody knows, is like, so if you're inter- if you hear this, if you want to see the American foundation for what spaghetti westerns would want to be and what The Wild Bunch and uh, Magnificent Seven were all based on, Vera Cruz. You, mm-hmm. you watch that, see Burt Lancaster in that. There's uh, Ernest Borgnine's in it. Charles Bronson's in it. Like and he plays the harmonica. Jack in Elam's it. in it. Like yeah. it's uh, it's yeah. it, there. He does play the harmonica with a band. Yeah, I like I like that scene where never the band no stops band playing and he goes, "I've never played with no band before. <laughs> Keep playing." <laughs> <laughs> just, but it's uh, yeah, Vera Cruz is kind of like the template of what the spaghetti western would be. Uh, with with the opening, what what else do you guys like about it? I thought something that was really interesting watching it again is that, and now knowing that story, you know, he he shoots those initial three characters with such import. You're surprised when they go down in the first 10 minutes. Like, I mean, having seen it before, I knew what would happen. But as but when you think back to your first time viewing, it's like, oh, you think these characters are going to be important. And then and that's the way they're shot. Yeah. These beautiful close ups. So much time is spent on them. And then immediately they're mowed down you know by harmonica and but it also shows you the importance of harmonica and his character and what he's going to mean for the story and so it tells you a lot in the first 10 minutes you know you get a lot of information with very little dialogue practically no music Mm -hmm. um it tells you everything about who harmonica is yeah yeah and i i do like that had it been those other three i mean it would probably be even more important Mm -hmm. lift up even more so the intention of that scene to mow down these actors given eight minutes of screen time up until their their inevitable death and uh who do you you think would have been each character like who do you think would have had each part if they had eli wallach and lee van cleef and clint um i mean i i bet clint eastwood would have been the jack elam character i think he would have been willie strode because willie strode's the one that shoots him he's the one fast enough to shoot him and like i don't know i feel like would clint eastwood mess around with the fly like that like kind of being weird and stuff like i don't know you, I think, do you see that as eli wallach or more of a lee van cleef i mean i think uh, eli wallach is definitely al molech yeah. Like, totally yeah. 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 yeah i think lee van cleef would have been the one sitting around just waiting and doing that whereas like clint eastwood would have been the ominous one underneath the water tower just being still and and the one who gets to actually shoot and, him and yeah and actually he's fast enough i can, enough to I shoot can him. see that i yeah. mean it, i mean talk about it. i mean just the the thrilling uh, nature of that opening scene i mm-hmm. i mean and to, and this movie has very sparse dialogue but my goodness when it's spoken because he's like it looks like we're shy one horse he goes you brought two too many and it's like oof, just like this just like this episode in this movie (laughs) (laughs) oh geez shots fired just kidding kidding. (laughs) but i mean i mean how it was written i mean the story was concocted by leone but also uh, dario argento mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. i mean that when you s- see that you're like that that's phenomenal the guy who does suspiria deep red so many horror films from the 70s and 80s like really established italian horror and Ber- uh, bernardo bertolucci yeah 
who also wrote the story, who you know went on to uh, have his uh, movie The Last Emperor win the Academy Award for Best yeah. Picture in the '80s, but did The Conformist and and uh, uh, other notable films. Like he is, I mean, these are three guys who really understood and had had a love for cinema and like crafting this. I mean, the, all they did was sit around and watch westerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, they 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 watched The Searchers. They watched uh, Iron Horse. I mean, the, even in the uh, in the opening. Uh, the the low angle of the train coming in is a direct reference yeah. to John Ford's Iron Horse. And the gun that Woody Strode has is the same kind of gun that uh, Steve McQueen had in his TV show uh, Wanted Dead or Alive. Yeah, it's, the, the uh, mayor's leg. Yeah, the, so there's so many. They, they they just immerse themselves, and you can just feel this kind of love for the western and and love for the genre and how they were kind of trying to also then create something new because there's something new going on with this. Like mm-hmm. e- even though it's it's really ingrained in the traditionalism it it's there it's trying to kind of heighten that traditionalism for a a different purpose and the characters kind of take on a different sense of iconography and mythology and they they kind of they have representations very very uh traditional representation but they sort of subvert them also like they they are kind of you know bronson even though the white he's the white hat christy and i talked about white hat black hat kind of iconography for this film even though he's the hero he acts in very aggressive ways that make it seem that that he might not be who he seems and that you know that that you know when he's pushing uh claudia cardinelli around like ripping off pieces of her clothes and pushing her on the hay i mean that that is not the the kind of behavior of a hero yeah i think it definitely subverts the archetypes i mean it it's a representation of them like you're saying but there's a lot of subversion throughout the movie for each character and each you know I think that you see throughout the film what he actually thinks of, yeah, these archetypes. And again, like you're saying, kind of bringing it into a new modern era. Yeah, yeah. And and, uh, and Henry Fonda alone also yeah. is a subversion, not only of just him as a person and what he represented to the history of the Western, mm-hmm. but also what that brings to the sensibilities of the film. Like he, he I mean, argue, he, Sergio Leone said that the lead character is Frank, that he is the lead character. And that's how he, he uh, uh, you know, Her- uh, Henry Fonda didn't want to do this. He uh, w- was hesitant to doing it. And uh, Sergio Leone flew out to New York to talk to him and convince him to do it. And I guess it was actually Eli Wallach who convinced him to do it. Yeah, he said, he's like, just do it. You'll have the time of your life. You have the time of your life. It's which like, don't worry about the script. He's just like, go ahead and do it. You're, yeah. So he just told him to go all in. It's really important. I think Henry Fonda is a really important conversation for this mm-hmm. for this film. I th- not only because it's kind of the reason it got made. <laughs> I mean, the yeah. fact that Sergio Leone wanted to work with him. But he brings with him that that sense of history of the Western. I mean, he was Wyatt Earp in My Darling Clementine. Mm-hmm. He was the affable, mostly an affable Western hero that worked with John Ford seven times and yeah. and was his second leading actor next to John Wayne. So with that, he he has the sensibility, very much like a Gary Cooper, where it, it, you you know of him as a, a good-natured human with all of his portrayals so for him to play the villain for him to come on it's 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 quite a subversion yeah and then apparently one of the things that leone told him in that meeting was like imagine that you know we see a cowboy's boots and then he shoots a child and we pan up and everybody sees it's henry fonda it's like that's leone knew exactly what he was going for from the get-go yeah with that 
subversion of like, oh my God, this we haven't seen this before. We haven't seen this guy play this kind of character. Yeah, and that's what a challenge that would do. I mean, any any actor, I think, relishes that opportunity to kind of transplant the the image of self. And mm-hmm. I think that would give a vibrant and uh, vibrancy and vigor to what they what they are doing. And I mean, you really get that in Henry Fonda. He's really uh, relishing the opportunity, and he's and he, and getting into the skin of Frank, which is a, a, a an, an important kind of representation of the West, and and that it's an archaic method, it's an archaic place, and that he has no room for it in the sense of the future. Like he 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 will not be ushering in the future, and it takes the entire movie for him to realize that he's trying throughout. He's trying to change or manipulate his ways, but the character can't do it. It's funny though, too, you uh, mentioning like the whole how he's like he was being pursued uh, by Leone and everything, and then when he actually showed up to shoot, he had a mustache mm-hmm. and brown contact lenses, and then Leone was like, "No, get rid of it. I need people to know it's Henry Fonda." I need so. those blue eyes, yeah. Yeah, those piercing blue eyes. I mean, I, it actually, I think, him playing against type is is in a way what makes the film. I mean, it's interesting. I hadn't heard that he had said, you know, obviously that he's the lead character, but you can see the admiration in the way he's shot and the way that he's handled in the film, I guess. Like, again, when you're seeing the final product and when you're seeing how he's handled in the story on screen, it's it's a beautiful depiction. And it also makes that character very interesting and very intriguing. And it's, I don't know if I'd say that I like him in the sense of like mm-hmm. person to yeah. person, but there is kind of that aspect of intrigue or, and maybe it is liking. I mean, yeah, it's, you're drawn in. You're drawn in by him, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. No, he, he's he's captivating, not only because he's uh, Henry Fonda, right. but he's captivating as kind of a person. And he's, he. I mean, he gets great lines. I mean, we always yeah. love characters that have the great lines. You know, it's like, you're wearing suspenders and a belt. Yeah, like, how do you <laughs> trust a man that's wearing suspenders, both suspenders and a belt? Man can't even trust his own pants. And so. that guy looks like you, Kyle. He does. I, I was going <laughs> to bring that up. This is this is Kyle's first Leone Western. Yeah, this is my first that that Leone Western. It was before I did Die Hard. And yeah, I was about uh, to say, using this and Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> I, sold, I sold Twinkies and Die Hard, and I got shot in, uh, in Once Upon a Time you in the laundry mat. Somebody sent me a a <laughs> message. Somebody sent me a, a text, and he goes, "Do you have an alter ego?" And then he sent me a picture of the amazing Jonathan, who is a comedian magician. Yeah. And I was like, "Well, you know, podcaster by day, magician by night. You know, what can I say?" <laughs> and you you're also a young Stephen King. Uh, young Stephen <laughs> King, yeah. That that that's an eerie one. Yeah, like the the. the you do uh, kind of look like Joe Hill, who's Stephen King's son. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so there. There you go. I'm. Uh, <laughs> I have all these doppelgangers, like who are far more famous than me. No, uh, it's you. We know it. You <laughs> oh, can't, you can't trick it's us, just Kyle. You. You're a vampire. You've lived through the ages. Are you? Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe that's. I. I can. Only I think hope. more time traveler. That's how. Time that's traveler, the, especially since we're outside in the daylight. Right? Uh, but he is know, in the shadows. He's in the shadow. Yeah, I can't be in the. Just daylight. like that yeah. character from what we do in the shadows, which I look like. <laughs> yeah, Matt Berry too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I look like too many people. Yeah. I, I'm, I don't feel very unique right now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, is there any anything on like your minds right now where you'd like to go into conversation? Uh, just just to open it up, like I'd love to just start talking about Claudia Cardinale and her sure. part and her introduction. Well, I guess we have to talk about the McBains a little bit more in detail too. I right? mean, as as kind of a narrative intro, yeah. The McBains, uh, she she is married. Uh, what, what's to his Richard first name? Richard Dreyfus. 
Is it Brett McBain? <laughs> yeah, I think it's Brett McBain. Yeah, Brett McBain, right. and he—he, he, I mean, in one of the—I uh, mean, what's great about the film, and I think right. we talked about it a little bit before, was reveals, and yes. there's a lot of things operating that the filmmakers know, but they don't cue in the audience. And there's a lot of hints. You can you can see a lot of the hints throughout the film. And once they are revealed, you're like, oh, they, they are powerful. It makes it so rewatchable. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, yeah. It, and it, it is a three-hour movie. It is long. But I'm amazed every time I watch it how quickly it moves. Yes. yes. I completely agree. Yeah, yeah. I totally it agree. It moves very quickly. Well, I mean, you, you, they're almost... It, it, it's it's novel... Novel, novelistic like it, it almost feels like a novel like they're mm-hmm. chapter based so when you're watching it, it's very much how like I mean Tar- Tarantino obviously loves this film and yeah. he references it directly in Inglorious Bastards mm-hmm. in the in the open Once Upon a Time and French intro to the making of book actually oh oh really yeah oh well there you go I mean so he he loves this film and uh, you, you can tell through the, the kind of you know Tarantino does chapters where he mm-hmm. lets his scene it's like almost like a scene that breathes and uh, Leone is kind of doing the same thing is like the introductions of the characters. I mean, the, the opening is kind of the introduction to harmonica and then you go to the McBain's and it's kind of the precursor chapter to then introducing Claudia Cardinale, Jill, uh, who's an ex prostitute, turned, uh, turned turn to clean life. Uh, actually another film reference, her entire character is a film reference to uh, uh, Joan Crawford and uh, Johnny Guitar. And uh, another film will be doing this season, but uh, it it is very much how it, it, how the reveals and the the kind of hidden nature of the script. It again, Josh has said it's, it makes it rewatchable because you can tap into its its kind of breathing nature into these chapters, and they give you a lot of information while not being overt with it. Mm-hmm. And it's the McBain sequence is about kind of getting ingrained into kind of he he who who this character is, why she probably fell in love with him, that he that the fact that he is marrying an ex prostitute makes makes him a good natured human being, that he he understood that he he was a smart human being. He understood the nature of this land and that it would have water and that it would become a station on the way from the the completion of the train to to pretty much solidifying the frontier and moving in the kind of the next and uh, the next uh, stage of american development which was oil and and the and the and the industry which is another topic we talk about this season it's interesting we go from chinatown to this episode where water is like a main point but not the main point yeah mm-hmm. so that's kind of funny <laughs> yeah 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 you, you bet, bet, yeah it's gonna be right after the other chinatown ended last season and then we uh we're, we're moving into another water and water is all over the brain in this movie i mean yeah. this this elemental quality i mean the morton the the guy who runs the the train operation like hears water like mm-hmm. he's like he's well, yeah, dreaming it's, it's of getting to the ocean of, music yeah the beach yeah going to see the ocean one more time yeah see the ocean one more time because it was tuberculosis but uh uh you know water water as a sense of life water as a sense of kind of progress like it it, it, it and and it is the 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 element that is needed in order to propel things forward and so the bit the in you know in the in the wilderness and the in the frontier there's a lack of water and there's a lack of life and that that means there's a lack of progress and so you you have to usher in with this element of uh, to to 
bring in progress, bring in this new sense of life. And so it's all on the brain. I think Carnali is kind of a representation of that. She's a representation of kind of the the fact that she gives water to people at the end, is mm-hmm. that she is kind of ushering in a new era and that she is kind of representation of that. She's an interesting character. And uh, her relation to the McBain, I mean, it, and I'm, I'm jumping around a little, I apologize. But the McBain sequence, I mean, is is in itself ends with subversion. I mean, to kill mm-hmm. a child on screen is kill pretty three remarkable. Children. Yeah, yeah, three children. I was going to say, yeah, the death have, of the children. Oh, well, and, and to have Henry Fonda do it. Yeah. 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 I mean another another great thing. It's like the 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 evil that is that is that is taken in that in that in that scene where he you know the guy is just like well what, what are you going to do with the kid Frank and he's like well you, now that you've said my name like, he just shoots the kid. I mean and then and then I mean a lot of people read into the 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 cross dissolve of the gun with the train and that which which I I don't know a lot of people say it's oh it's the capitalist entity that you know it's ushering in it's like tantamount to murder it's like killing but it's it's different because I think there I are think, many motives for murder we well, also find out Morton didn't want them dead yes so this is actually just Henry Fonda choosing this route yeah yeah <laughs> yeah he says I find well, people this are, is, more, are better scared when they're dying <laughs> yeah. people are better scared when they're dying um well and I th- I think it's um. With uh, w- w- when people interpret that, that it's like the train is like modernity or the train is like capitalism, that it's like the same to murder. I think it's different. I think uh, Henry, Henry Fonda, like you said, is the one who's made this choice. Mm-hmm. He's got the gun. It's the old way cross dissolving to the new way, which is the expansion. And they're going to be at odds with each other through the entire film. They're almost telling you right at the center that Morton has a way and it's the new way. And Fonda has the old way. And which one is going to win out is really the question, I think, at the beginning of the film. And I love the scene where they're comparing. It's like this weapon is the only thing that stops that weapon. He's got the money. And it's money. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think we also, let's be fair, we're dissolving into Jill's introduction. Mm-hmm. So she's about to carry us into that next you know, plot device. But also our next, like you're saying, moving us from the old way to the new way of what's going to become you know, the next wave. And so I think, you know, and Jill's introduction is great. Like she, she shows up, she's clearly something's wrong. She knows as soon as she doesn't see the family that something's wrong. Mm -hmm. So she, but she takes it on herself. Again, I think this has to do with her past, her character, you know, to go to the ranch herself, you know, and she's like, well, I'm going to go find them then. And she shows up on what should be her wedding day to a funeral, you know, like everything about this is a fantastic introduction to a character. Again, so little dialogue. The music there is beautiful. I mean, her theme is mm. incredible. I mean, that's that's pretty much throughout. I mean, uh, Morricone wrote the score, obviously, mm-hmm. before the film was ever shot, which is, I mean, phenomenal to yeah, think about. fascinating. And that shot in particular is one of where uh, Leone would play the score in the background when he shot the film because they wouldn't, a lot of times, wouldn't use audio. Like they, they would just shoot with music playing and they choreographed that entire sequence to the music. Oh, fascinating. Like on yeah, set. That, well, I think that's become a little bit more legend than fact. <laughs> I read an interview with the the director of photography uh, that worked on all the Dollars Trilogy and this film and all the way up through Once Upon a Time in America. And uh, he says, like, they would do it. They would play. He would play it on set while they were preparing mm-hmm. and they would play it during rehearsals. But when they were actually rolling the cameras, it was 
silent but because they wanted to get good production so it's like a, a combination of the two yeah so i think it's kind of the legend of it is kind of taken on its own thing but yeah it's like, for you sure. know when clint eastwood's staring off it or staring at eli wallach and lee van cleef at the end there that there's a giant speaker off somewhere <laughs> blasting the you know uh ecstasy of that gold. would be cool <laughs> no it's yeah, like the lady it. standing there going like doing the ecstasy of gold like in person oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like right off right yeah. off camera <laughs> It's like I don't think that was actually happening, yeah. but no, there's <laughs> a guy going wah wah wah. <laughs> but I, I, they did get, use it as a mood setter. I was for gonna say sure. getting everyone yeah. into the mood of the scene. Yeah, and and again, like doing like rehearsals and figuring out camera moves and stuff like that. I'm sure that played some sort of because his his movies are so rhythmic, and they do have it's not like a rhythm through cutting. One of the things I noticed watching this film again is how much he works through dolly moves mm-hmm. yeah a and, lot. and like even henry fonda's uh death at the end of the movie you know he f- he's falling back towards the camera yeah, and you think it's just going to be a close-up of henry fonda and it's like 30 seconds into the take charles bronson comes into the frame mm-hmm. and balances it out and then the scene continues just through simple camera moves it's not done through cuts it's through movement um and it's like I think that gets lost in in discussions about Leone's style because everybody talks about you know the rhythm the rhythm of his cutting at the end of Good Bad and the Ugly and uh, you know how he always cuts to the close up but how many times do you see him take something that's a long shot and turn it into a close up mm-hmm. just by having a character step into frame it's like he he was a master at doing that yeah I think what and what I like the sense of movement in this film actually one of my favorite shots is when Fonda comes back to the train to, uh, to basically kill Morton like he and he goes into the the, yes. the car mm-hmm. and the camera moves on the ground just showing you the carnage of of uh, of the dusters that uh, shot has been stolen so many times i know and it and it is a phenomenally done shot and uh, and it's been stolen and yet i don't think it has been equally capitalized on like it, there's something so powerful about it well and when you see him can you imagine the timing on this and how many times they had to do it but when you see him it continues continues you're seeing all the carnage and then you see henry fonda step through the cars two more cars into the next car and it keeps going yeah it's like so the timing of getting him going in the middle of the actual train and then having all these people in front holding completely still i mean the idea of it alone is phenomenal and i agree with you i don't think it's ever been done better yeah it's i mean it's it's a revolutionary uh sort of style i mean that 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 kind of obsession with his style like to really have these dramatic flourishes like it it really it it developed kind of a new language that i think people were were not necessarily tuned in on uh and that they didn't necessarily see its influences uh until later like because i think people were watching these and learning a lot but not necessarily you know even people at the time didn't take once upon a time in the west seriously as a film like a lot of people thought it was too long too americans didn't americans yeah yeah i read a story that it played at one french cinema for over two years and the project <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah leone showed up and the projectionist threatened to kill him because he's like every day i have to watch this slow stupid movie every day it's like i'm gonna kill you <laughs> Yeah, it was the number one movie in France in 1960. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He, yeah. Leone showed up and he was yeah swarmed with with fans and for autographs. But yeah, yeah, the project. I do remember the projectionist story. He, he hated it. <laughs> I mean, after two years of playing, I mean, I don't know. There are worse movies to yeah, play for two years <laughs> repetitively. Well, could have been Oliver. 
it was around that Which time. Which won Best Picture in 1969 oh or whatever, God. or 68, whenever this movie came out. Yeah, 68. Isn't that, that's that's fun. That's so weird to think about. I, yeah. you know, because it's 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 a good movie, Oliver, but it's not. I mean, this movie not, didn't I mean, get any appreciation. Yeah, no. <laughs> like this movie. Yeah, this movie got like even even Ebert at the time was like. It's fine, like it's, yeah. it's two and a half stars. Yeah, he didn't he didn't like Claudia Cardinale's performance either, which I love her in this movie, man. B- uh, yeah, yeah, it baffles me. Yeah, yeah. I agree. She's, she's this, she was a serious moment in my life when I was <laughs> a teenager. I was like, who the hell is that person? Yeah, who is this? <laughs> I love I love how she uh, when she gets to the train station and then she decides to go to the McBain farm or whatever, and like she takes the longest buggy ride in the history of cinema from Spain to Monument Valley. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Crossed an ocean. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a gr- it's a great patchwork of yeah. locations. I mean, they yeah. Spain uh, only really a couple shots in Monument Valley. They only yeah. he only wanted yeah. to. He was the first time he did it. Like all the interiors, I think, were all shot in Spain for sure on like yeah. a soundstage and stuff. It's interesting. It, Claudia Carnelli, I think it is a great performance. You know, again, this kind of the 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 dubbing, especially there. She has some great lines, but then like on a close up with with the dubbing comes off weird. I was watching it last night when she's when the guy's like, well, we have a bath and only three people have used it. She's like each one at a time or all together. <laughs> and it's a close up of her saying it. And the dubbing is off. Like it's, it's just yeah. like really off. But I do think th- there is a really captivating nature to Claudia Cardinelli and the, the characters like there, there are some really problematic things that are going on around her but I think that's also Sergio Leone recognizing of the problematic nature of how women are treated and in, in yeah. the West and mm-hmm. I think it, it I think it's really obvious that that's the the goal here I mean there, there's a lot of di- uncomfortable situations even even ones that are charming such as like when Cheyenne pats her on the ass like and and says it's like you know pretend like it's nothing there's some like problematic elements to that but i you know a lot of people on a superficial level a lot of people who don't want to like read into character read into what the context of a scene is would probably look at that and go that's weird i'm gonna probably turn my brain off to that and probably kind of cast this scene out from my mind or you know not consider that it's a little backwards but I think there's a lot yeah, of... you want to cancel Cheyenne. You cancel Cheyenne. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 there's a Twitter campaign canceling Cheyenne. They certainly know. do like to cancel pe- dead people, so... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cheyenne, I, I think there's a lot of context in the scene. Like, uh, I mean, consider one, he's dying. He's dying in the scene. And and basically, I think there's a sentiment there. It, he, he's also very, very informed about a very archaic... And, uh, you know, he's also a dying breed. He's, mm-hmm. he's kind of from this, this backwards... Uh, sense of the lawlessness, the frontier, the, what that represents, and kind of an amorality of sorts. And so, you, you, it, because there's an amoral, even though he's a moral character, he's probably the most heroic character within the confines of the film. Way to steal that. Uh, well, <laughs> I, you know, I steal things. Uh, it just happens. After after you say it, it's going to go into my brain, and it's probably just going to come out. Basically, I, I think that he he is uh, amorality kind of is persistent throughout the West and the frontier, and and because it's it's a hard place to kind of adhere to a, a sensible law and order or a sensible sense of morals because it's kind of cast out. It's primal. It's uh, this is kind of what the 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 frontier and landscape kind of represents. And the movie is kind of moving beyond, like, recognizing that and very much having a critical point of that. 
and ushering in and Claudia Cardinelli is kind of a representation of this a new era a new wave of a kind of a, a humanist quality a good sensibility a good morality that's going to usher in a, a new era beyond this 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 place this time of history yeah I mean usually in any good western there's some sort of metaphor for the new world coming in you yeah. know in the wild bunch you have the machine gun you know in a lot of movies it's a train there's always that conflict between the old and the new and i think in once upon a time in the west she is that transitional moment um she is the new world coming to this old place and it's why you know charles bronson and jason, jason robards, robards at the end of the movie you know leave mm -hmm. is like but they also spent the movie protecting her they see her as the idea of the new world coming in yeah. and they're the ones that are like we have to protect this thing and it's not like you know and they're not trying to win you know, get the girl at the end of the movie. It's more they're trying to protect an idea, and she almost becomes. It's not not necessarily a MacGuffin because she has more agency than a MacGuffin has, but it's she she becomes like the the metaphor for you know what the what the film is trying to say. And so, and and to reference that line that he says to her, you know, just pretend it's nothing. There's no nefarious like he he's not he's not being creepy when he's saying that. There's a sentiment no. behind it where he's trying to encourage her to keep going forward because he's saying like, yeah, all these guys on this work crew, they're savages and they're going to do this to you. They're going to grab your ass and say inappropriate things and do all this stuff. But you got to keep going because you are get, like, that's how you um, succeed. That's how you are going to be, you know, the person that settles this new uninhabited land is by being tougher than you think you are. Which she is. She yeah. is very much. And so, uh, yeah, it's like I, I, you could easily take that one line and say, oh, that he's a bad guy. And it's like, no, the sentiment that he's conveying to her behind it is like very, very powerful, honestly. Yeah. Well, and it, it it's kind of reassuring her kind of hesitancy with her resilience. Like she she talks a lot about it throughout the film about, uh, you know, be, being in a situation with men in this way being used she was an ex-prostitute and that it's just another dirty memory and uh, christy was kind of wanting to t talk about uh frank and jill which well. is uh, a very particular <laughs> yeah. i think i think a, yeah. a, a pretty particular encapsulation of of her resilience versus yeah. the, what the world like how she survives in this world like frank's a representation of that old world and mm -hmm. how she is going to uh yeah i mean if you want to jump into yeah, it yeah no, all good. <laughs> no i i yeah, the scene with Frank and Jill is hard to watch, but yes. it's very much, you know, they openly talk about, it's a rape scene, and they openly talk about how, you know, they both know what this is. Like, Frank is basically teasing her the entire time about how he's going to do this to get, you know... To oh, he's going to kill her. Yeah, <laughs> he well... Just, yeah, he keeps saying it over and over He's again. suggesting he's going to kill her over and over again, and he doesn't, but he's obviously the one in power, and yet she's the one that's... I'm not going to say letting it happen, because she she is choosing very carefully how she's treating the situation. And, you know, he knows her background. He Like, he knows a lot about her, and yet she's she's strong. She's, she's choosing to say save her own life and she says it she's like i'll do anything to save myself in that conversation and he and you know frank says it first like will you do anything to save yourself and she's like yeah i will you know and so you know that she's gonna come out on top even though 
she's experiencing this horrific thing and she has throughout her life and so i think it's just, i think it's actually a powerful moment for her character and it also is again showing some of frank's downfalls like he's he's very sure of himself in situations where he probably shouldn't be mm-hmm. and ultimately it's going to lead to his death but you know i think i think it's just an interesting scene that actually shows her cunning that her, that she's in control in the situation in reality and she's she is a powerful woman even though this thing is happening to her and so and i think you kind of have this similar you know we were just talking about the moment with cheyenne but like that's an interesting scene because Cheyenne and her have kind of been playing house Mm -hmm. and like there's two scenes where they remark about playing house and the first one is very confrontational because she doesn't know who he is and he's broken into the house looking for money she's been ransacking the house looking for money and there's no money to be found and they don't realize that the money's in the water Yeah, and so but they like tease about making coffee and they tease about you know uh, staying at the house together and like all these things and then the later scene is much more emotional and much more they, they kind of have this realization he even says well I'm not the right man either she's she's kind of got her eyes on harmonica and he's like he's not the right man and neither am I you know no. and it's like and it's what you guys have been saying about she's she has to get beyond this old era these old men who are holding her back who are treating her terribly who are and not all of them are jill needs to move beyond these men and i think that's a part of the archetype that you guys have been talking about which is you know she is the next generation she's moving beyond the old ways yeah and it's interesting because i think leone it's funny because he has a, a fascination with the western i mean he grew up in the western i mean his his father was a silent he basically did silent film for italy his mother was an actress and he grew up in cinema and loved watching loved watching um westerns and he grew up like that's what he saw in in his uh, time in the cinema and so i think he has this devout love and appreciation for america the american sensibility and the the kind of uh, idealized sense of the west but it's funny because he he also very much as i think a foreigner and a, a critic of of this sort of of this sort of genre and and sort of the representations, I th- he sees past like he sees the admirable qualities of his of his gunslinger and and harmonica. He sees the admirable qualities in his outlaw of mm-hmm. Cheyenne, which both both are kind of subversions of expectations of the outlaw. Like I mean, even from the times of, of Stagecoach and John Wayne, they were subverting the idea of the outlaw and that yeah. maybe he's they're not so bad, or maybe they're a representation of some some kind of uh you know moral vigor that was different than the what what civilization was required and that civilization was flawed and so mm-hmm. perhaps these marginalized people are kind of the sense forward and uh i mean that's part of the message here as well i mean that that kind of revisionist idea is that they that, that society can be kind of ar- archaic in a way and can't move fast be beyond the uh, the influence and the push of marginalized sensibilities and people because they're the kind of the idea of more tolerant and more accepting natures but leone with that i think he uses these characters as these large symbols and representations of the mythology of the western and then at the same time even though they have admirable qualities is sort of saying all of these men cheyenne harmonica frank in all of their degrees of morality or their degrees of likability they they need to be gone like mm-hmm. the, and and that that the, the, I mean the whole film I mean the, the once upon a time in the West I mean if you'd go through the the root of of in its Italian Volta 
is about a turning point. And I think he that's what he's trying to say. Leon is trying to say, I'm ushering in a turning point. This is a turning point to go beyond this because this needs to change. This attitude, these these kind of attitudes. And maybe making it 1968 kind of a, a time of upheaval, social upheaval, of worldly upheaval, particularly American upheaval in a political and cultural sense. Maybe he's trying to say and encapsulate that time and that feeling that this needs to be a turning point of life and this needs to be a turning point in our culture and and it's because we're still kind of tethered to these archaic heroes of men mm-hmm. and and because because they can be pretty darn charming and they can be pretty darn captivating and we 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 do love our western heroes even if they do horrible things and harmonica even though he's the hero of the story does some pretty horrible things yeah. and uh it, and and for the sake of his own selfish uh vengeance lust and and it's because that that's this this old world we need to move beyond that and maybe leona was like in 1968 we haven't moved beyond this and we need to yeah. move beyond this. And this is my way of ushering in an operatic, you know, end. This this is kind of, uh, and this is another aspect why I had this for this episode. It's kind of, even though this is a great captivating Western and a, and a kind of uh, an encapsulation and representation of all Westerns prior and ushering in a new era of what Westerns would be, it's kind of a eulogy of the Western, of the West. It, and, and that's yeah. why it's a once upon a time. This, this is the past. Well, and I think the literal translation of the, original italian title is once upon a time there was the west Mm, there you go yeah and so it gives you an idea that he very much is concerned that this needs to be a depiction of the past and we need to usher in modernity and and a a better sensibility and i think i think jill is that 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 hope yeah we've talked a lot about that today about how she is a representation of that hope it's it's a fascinating film in all of its complexity so with that like let me let me try and summarize here once upon a time in the west you know just on my end for an experience and then i'm going to open up the floor to kind of moving into different variety of conversations from my guests uh you know what what they're yearning to talk about things that are on their minds and any aspects of the characters we haven't necessarily addressed but you know with, uh, once upon a time in the west why it it's starting out this season and i really want to keep that in mind when you're moving forward and if you're listening to each episode uh in order and if you do thank you that's uh that's the biggest ego boost if you listen to it all the way through if you listen from episode one to episode 50 to kind of get a sense of the genre with us and with this discovery and with this journey i mean i i thank you for being part of that and once upon a time in the west it's it's very much this this foundational piece of the west uh, of the western genre and it's because Leona, uh, along with everybody who appreciates the genre, anyone who sort of pioneered the genre, from your John Fords to your Howard Hawks, they, they have a love for this backdrop of the West. There's something elusive and, and uh, inviting and very intriguing about the West and that it is, uh, I mean, to, to be a frontiersman, to be somebody in this time, to venture out into the nothingness, into the void it takes kind of heroic sensibilities it also could take probably psychopathic sensibilities where you you are very much in tune with your own self-interest and 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 not a concern for others or you are just concerned for a life anew and developing something for yourself i mean it brought all these kinds of people you have to have a, a, a something beyond the normalcy of the human experience to go out into the wilderness this and and to stretch it 
and to pioneer and trying to to uh, tackle nature trying to tackle self trying to tackle civilization or the lack thereof it, it was a dangerous backdrop that really fueled an idea of the rugged individualism that was that was uh, that was tantamount to the American identity and experience. And and Leone understands this, and as an outsider perspective, as a foreigner looking in on an appreciation of this time of, of historicism, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's not historical fact, but it is an embellishment on a historical reality that is, uh, that is I, basically synonymous with the American experience of cinema, that, that this sort of mythology and iconography was developed within American cinema, America, it's American novelty, and to appreciate that, but also see that there are un- uncomfortable elements and bring about complex characters that re- represent the, the layering of troublesome aspects, problematic aspects of of what can be also an admirable time of discovery and propulsion forward in in in, in humanity and civilization. It's it's a difficult thing to kind of uh, to to wrap your head around in a dramatic sense. And Sergio Leone here in his in this truly operatic and uh, highly stylized, embellished uh, film that that but but takes its time. It it's it it it's, it breathes life into each scene. It's 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 like a chapter. Each each scene is like a chapter that that is sort of propelling the story forward and giving you more insight to the characters, their symbolism, and the the high mind that this film has. And it it it's. It's uh, it, it's it's truly a wonder, and uh, we've talked a lot about that th- through this episode. Ben, I wanted to maybe give you the first opportunity. We're gonna just go around and get everybody's sort of last thoughts and uh, su- summations of their conversation and experience, but also anything that we haven't brought up, anything that uh, a scene or uh, a aspect of the characters that we haven't necessarily talked about. This is our opportunity, and everyone's going to get their opportunity. And feel free to join in on the conversation. This is just going to open the conversation. Up. But Ben, uh, if you'd like to start us off, yeah, um, I would like to talk a little bit more about Cheyenne and his part in uh, in helping to bring down Frank's demise and everything, and and helping um, Jill to keep her land and uh, have her ability to move forward, along with obviously harmonica. But like, I love the the scene where the auction scene, mm-hmm. where all of um, Frank's men are making it so people can't bid yeah. and they're intimidating everyone, and they're like five hundred going once, going twice, and then you just hear five thousand dollars, and it's 5, harmonica. Five thousand dollars. Yeah, it's like he walks like he's in the balcony and. Uh, and uh, he's like, I got it right here. And then you see Cheyenne come down and he's got a $5,000 reward on his head. <laughs> and uh, he basically, clearly Harmonica doesn't capture him. He, he They decide to make this plan. He's like, hey, yeah. I'll turn myself in. You'll get the money. You'll get so she can keep the land. And uh, he'll they'll take him back to jail and then he'll just break out like he does. But just that him whole, like, his whole uh, like kind of self-sacrifice, especially when he finds out he's actually going to Yuma, like a modern jail instead of going to the regular jail he's broken out of several times. But like that whole thing with with Cheyenne and how like he does have things about him, but he clearly wants to see this through. Uh, his whole um, being involved in the first place was because Frank, when he killed the children, he made it look like it was Cheyenne by having mm-hmm. the men all wear dusters, yeah. like because that's. Like only Cheyenne's men were dusters and stuff, so trying to pin it on him, so he he like gets involved in that way because he wants to 
prove that he didn't do it, not necessarily to authority, but to her, you know, is that she's the one that has to believe that he didn't have anything to do with it. And so he helps her, even though he's kind of weird about it. But that scene where he first goes to her house and like rummages through her things and they have the coffee. And then when he leaves, um, you find out that harmonica is there and uh, there, there are two gunmen on horseback like just on the hill that come charging in and then like Charles Bronson just kills him easily because it's Charles Bronson yeah yeah <laughs> but but the then you see that that Cheyenne is actually there with his men got his rifle ready like he was he was actually waiting to like whether it's to protect her or whether to see if there is something going on there whether there's money hidden or whatever but I just like the fact that that character isn't just a one-sided like bandit that just wants to get he's just no, looking for very gold complex. at the end yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. he's very complex and 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 it's because you know that that the outlaw brings with it uh, a perception and he's breaking it every every you know every step of the way and and it's because of the the charming aspect of his character i mean jason robards mm-hmm. is uh, we haven't talked much about him this this episode but fantastic. he is fantastic I, I don't know if any of you've seen ballad of cable hogue it's a sam peckinpah mm-hmm. uh western but it, it's also about water and he brings an entirely different kind of character to it and every time i see jason robart i'm always impressed like he just carries with him a uh that that kind of devilish charm that you know that banter in between him and harmonica in the beginning he's like can you play or can you shoot uh and you know and and he's like watch out for those false notes and they're just playing around with each other like they're getting under each other's skin and he's like he can shoot yeah yeah no (laughs) and it's it's that that sort of dynamic gives so much life and charming life to this this drama that's unfolding it's like they are complex character they're they're not these one-dimensional rudimentary mythos representations they are living breathing people and i think that's and and the fact that you know morricone's score gives them all these themes ushers in that you get an idea as josh said earlier it's like when you hear that score it's Mm -hmm. like you already know what you're getting into with the scene and it's it's the the language of this cinema that's being unfolded is very is very refreshing because it's it's inviting you as an audience member to participate yeah and the following scene that i i really like that's it's like shortly after the auction is uh when frank leaves the bar and harmonica knows that there are men outside waiting for him and he's just watching him and like frank clearly feels something's off too and like just that whole walking through the town and he's like horses go by really quickly and he's all cautious and and then like harmonica's yeah. protecting him but then he ends up killing all the guys that are like he's he's like he like tells him like oh already past 12 and there was a guy above the clock tower yeah. and and uh, the guy behind the the billboard poster thing and then frank gets away when he could have easily been killed by any of these guys yeah. without well, he, harmonica you can't out. let him be killed yeah, yeah. well that's that's yeah. what i'm exactly. leading to is that like cardinali's line let them kill him and that's not yeah. the same thing. Yeah, the same yeah. Thing. yeah. that's what great, I was getting into. A yeah. great cat and mouse, like, and a flip on the cat and mouse play, mm-hmm. where you know you're kind of seeing it from Harmonica's perspective. You can see you as the audience member are also seeing the men that are around. So you're seeing it from Harmonica's point of view and how he's yeah stopping. Mm-hmm. You know he ha- he wants it his way. Harmonica he, he does. wants revenge so yeah. much. Like, he can't let anybody else kill him. It, like, him dying isn't enough. Him dying by his hand is, like, what's most important. And exactly. then the last thing I want to talk about is that final shootout duel at the end between Frank, that long, just, like, meticulously, every step, every every sound. Uh, like, 
in the background you see he's just sitting uh harmonica sitting on the fence whittling and mm-hmm. jason robards inside says like he's whittling i think when he's done something's gonna happen no way and the most incredible use of flashback i mean yeah. I, I don't think it's ever been done better the yeah. the way that they get into the flashback the the move in on harmonica's eyes i mean i just it's so beautifully done it's so subtle and nice and it lands all of the emotion wrapped up in again comparatively to a, a long film a fairly short moment but it gives you everything mm-hmm. i'm like yeah. those flashbacks are incredible too you know yeah having him like have to carry his weight of his brother while he's yes. being hanged and like frank doesn't care to shoot him he doesn't want to like he doesn't he thinks it's more fun to yeah. just watch him lose all the energy and basically kill his own brother in in yeah, a way he's he's uh he's despicable like yeah. i mean it's pure evil in that in that moment and to see those blue eyes you know you know gleam yes you know in that evil you're ben you're bringing up multiple scenes that actually i think i can i can talk about in a summary of how all of this is really wrapped in sergio leone's kind of way that he tells film and his technique it's he knows how to build tension yeah incredibly well and the use of sound especially and how when when music comes in it it brings with it a sense of of dramatic weight but when he removes it and you're just hearing kind of a silent soundscape i mean this is done in the opening scene where where there's no music and you're just hearing every bit of noise that is available in this desolate landscape it's pretty much nobody's there but you hear all these intricate sounds that are going out uh, in the McBain shooting, uh, they lead up where he, the, the, the crickets are going and then they all of a sudden go out. And it's eerie. It, it's, it builds a sense of tension. It, it, it tells you, especially when the first time you watch this, you have no idea what's about to unfold. Yeah. And because, uh, you know, even though there are pretty despicable actions in the West, but the killing of children is one that's pretty up there with that. That's pretty revisionist, like where, yeah. where it was probably reality in, in a lot of circumstances in, in the past, in, in actual history. But in in a sense of cinema, like to show that to actually have it propel the story forward, that that's pretty shocking. It's a pretty shocking moment. But also, the, yeah, the in in leading into the flashback, there's a lot of uh, the 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 operatic, the literally operatic voice that's mm-hmm. leading into the, this showdown, this judgment showdown of the between them. That use of music, but then when you cut it out or go into a lull in the music and you lean, you know, go right into his. This is so interesting of his style because he lets things, he, you know, a lot of filmmakers wouldn't allow shots or sequences to play out in this long, elongated form, but he lets these scenes kind of, you, it's like you're being submerged into its atmosphere. And th- this is a, an incredible use that he has and that it makes it pure. It, that's what makes it purely what we call cinematic. When you think of things as cinema, it takes you to an elevated place. And that's what he's doing in this film. And that's what he's doing in each of these kind of sequences that you're talking about is that he's using either music or a lacking thereof in order to enhance something of an unease or attention in the scene. And that's that's exceptional. It's an exceptional quality. It's brilliantly done. Yeah, and, yeah. like, the whole thing with Frank is so interesting, too, is, like, he has no reason to go face harmonica. He's, like, he's there's nothing to gain. There's no money. He's just, like, his ego mm-hmm. is controlling every decision he makes at this point, and he yeah. just has to know that line. He's like, who are you? And he's like, and then harmonica's, like, only at the point of dying. 
and then they just they go into it and that that they they walk over even though there's all these guys in the background just like working on a railroad and stuff and and uh, he he just he he's perplexing i mean he's such a mystery that when you that he's he again it is ego he has to solve it i mean when he first asks him he's just listing off dead people people he he killed killed. yeah Mm -hmm. But I mean, then, that's, like that's pretty, pretty ballsy yeah. of a of a of a move. But I mean, he re- he knows Frank. He it, obviously he does because he's dealt with him before. But so he's able to read him and make him intrigued enough to face him. So it's 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 a it's a grand play, and it plays out in such a epic form that it, it it's rewarding. And I, I love the fact that like I don't know if this is a, was planned or not, but like when Frank walks over when he when he walks around to like get in his final stance he actually walks to where the sun is in harmonica's eyes and the the sun's at his back so he has like the advantage but then as soon as it goes he gets spun around which is not mm-hmm. something you really see in a shootout like that like usually it's like they get shot and they fall down or yeah. like nobody usually like spins around like that and looks di- like the direct opposite way they were and uh and now all of a sudden the sun is in his eyes like he, even though he had the advantage in a way like all of a sudden the tables are turned on him and then like he, him holds trying to put the gun back and he just can't like he's he and then realizing once the harmonica is put in, in his mouth and everything uh it's just it's just beautiful <laughs> yeah it's a be- it's a beautiful culmination to this uh it, it's it's one of the most beautifully done vengeance dramas i, th- I think mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and, and i think everybody has tried to kind of replicate the the emotional baggage and the the felt weight of it uh as in 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 uh imitations uh past it but uh, you you don't you this one is really so grand and handled so well especially we've talked about the revealing nature earlier on it's like keeping that close to the chest i mean it gives it its power well it's interesting i mean a lot of the those kind of stories are told from the person trying to get revenge's perspective yeah and this it's all frank like we don't know mm-hmm. what harmonica's motive is until that that final scene when we get the flashback and then you realize this some of the snippets you've been seeing throughout the film but it really is told from frank's perspective yeah and he he's he can't understand why and it adds to that layer of like he is pure evil he can't he doesn't even remember that he tortured and killed a kid yeah killed a yeah yeah, I think that's the an interesting aspect of these scenes where, like, Harmonica is saying other people's names that Frank has killed. That tells us a lot about Frank, you know, like that he like Harmonica can rattle off, I think, by the end, you know, anywhere from five to ten names. And Frank is like, well, those are all dead men. And it's like, yeah, they're all dead men you killed, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's like it, it just gives you the scope of what Frank has actually done in his life, which is terrible yeah. and terrifying. Like he ha- he has committed a lot of murder. And when you're first introduced to Frank, he doesn't really come off that way. And again, I think this is playing against type that it was Henry Fonda. But, you know, he comes off as kind of jovial. He's joking. You know, I mean. He's also he, trying to imitate a new life. Like, yeah, he's trying to be yes. a businessman. He wants to be businessman. And as the movie goes on and progresses and people interact with him, and especially Harmonica, you realize how terrible he actually is. Yeah. And and actually, before we started this, Christy and I were talking about how the costuming. A lot mm-hmm. of people remember Henry Fonda in black. But he right. really doesn't really come into the film in black until the saloon where he's almost yeah yeah in the auction room where he is kind of given up 
given up this yeah. uh, he's he it's like he's almost made the decision but like because of his falling out with morton because he's trying to take over he's kind of submitting to who he is it's like he 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 is the he is lawlessness and he yeah. can't change and harmonica comes down the stairs as the true white hat in full and basically full white which has not really happened before that either i mean it's there's hints of it they both have hints of it throughout the movie but it's that culmination is when we are revealed as the true black and white hat yeah yeah and, and it's 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 wonderfully done it's subtly done it's that that subtle change in costuming to reveal who real you know because there's a lot of mystery mm-hmm. to to what's going on between these characters and it, you know there's a gray line between who's right and who's wrong in in this kind of epic showdown but once once it really becomes clear, once once it is by the end, they are the true white hat, black mm-hmm. hat. They are the representations of what is admirable versus what is evil about the West. Mm-hmm. And they are showing down and which one will win out is is a question. And whether it and this, that's another question, whether it matters, you right. know, e, e, you know, either one of them win. There's really no future for either of them in in what is being ushered in and behind them with the train train being built. Yeah, but of the three men, Harmonica is the only one that lives. Harmonica is the representation of the Old West in its best form. And even though he is leaving, he lives on. So I think that's kind of the essence of that. There's actually an interesting theory about that, too. Um, I don't I don't necessarily believe in it, but I think it's kind of cool is the whole uh, Cheyenne and um, Harmonica, their like their first moment together, their last moment together, mirror each other because when Cheyenne meets Harmonica, he he sees that he has a bullet hole in his clothing, and then at the end, Harmonica sees that he's got a bullet hole in, and Cheyenne's got a bullet hole in him, and uh, he says Cheyenne says like if someone's gonna kill you, make sure they know where to shoot or whatever. Mm-hmm. But if you've noticed, Harmonica has a bullet hole in the back of his jacket too Mm -hmm. and there's a theory that he's been dead the whole time and that it's just death coming to get vengeance and like that's why like he was unstoppable in a way uh in in that whole mythic sense of it but i don't necessarily believe in it myself i just think he's just a guy well i mean that would be an it's an interesting theory because of it's still all these characters are kind of symbols they're symbolic in a lot of ways so that that kind of mythical nature to him as as a drive of of vengeance of of probably justified vengeance of being that perhaps yeah perhaps it is that it it could be that's an interesting theory too because harmonica and cheyenne but ultimately harmonica is the one who realizes that the water is what was what people were after and he's also the one that explains that if they don't build the station before the train comes that's through that's a great scene. Yeah, it is a great <laughs> scene. If they don't build the station before the train comes through she's going to lose everything. Yeah. And so they like Harmonica and then Cheyenne later are the two that like literally get men to come and build the station right like they are still laying track as it pulls up right at the end of the movie and yet they did it they accomplished what they were doing and so it's an interesting theory to again when you're talking archetypes or like symbolism that certainly goes along with that that the you know the men the the two good men and ultimately death or an archetypal you know old west or the good things of the west are what bring are actually are what bring in the new generation and they make it just in time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're there to protect that progress mm-hmm. and, and allow it to happen. Whereas Frank is, is always trying to control it and always yeah. trying to make it his own, which is kind of like, I think the moral center of 
the film and even you know and i said earlier that jill is kind of the embodiment of that idea you know they're literally protecting her mm. yeah uh, but really what they're doing is they're protecting the progress of the west well and then and then you you get into those ideas of uh, avenging angels and that you know he's in white he's kind mm-hmm. of omniscient like he's the one telling them oh there's water here like th- yeah. this is he knows kind of uh, the play at hand and he and because he seems practically invincible or that even if he gets shot he's able to just Didn't get need up to get stitches or nothing no and so <laughs> it it's an interesting theory but it's it's a theory that is just kind of enhancing kind of the mythology at the heart mm-hmm. of it and what's the, the dynamic that's going on between cuz i mean really the movie is about ushering in a new age and and killing off the old and and fonda is the old and so this avenging angel that that something that is right with the West, or the the be- as, uh, as Christy put it, the best of the West, mm-hmm. of and that he is a representation of that I- I- uh, idealist quality that that is representative of what what can be good, even if it's at times a bit backwards. Uh, that that if that if that is the thing that survives or ushers in or helps usher in a new new era, and knowing that the, because their time is up, they're a dying breed, and that they need to get give way to this. I mean, it just it just enhances that quality within the, the with the aspects of the characters, even if they are living and breathing. So it, 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 they are symbolic, but uh, that that theory is sort of just tied in with what what ha- what is unfolded anyway. So I like th- I like that theory because of that because you can read it into that way and it just helps you understand the dynamic between the characters. But yeah. it's not like set in stone so you could be whatever you want it to be. It, it, yeah. For sure, for sure. Mo- moving along to Cri- Christy, if there's any other thoughts in your mind uh, and it can be a continuation of what we've just been talking about or if there's other scenes or other aspects of the film that we have not uh, addressed, I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts. Well, we did just talk about some of them, so that was nice because I, you know, I definitely had wanted to mention the flashback, which incredible. And there's so many scenes that are fantastic in this film, and the movie itself—it's one that I would recommend 100% of the time. It's absolutely gorgeous, but it's also such a great story. Like the way the story is told, you—we don't get a lot of movies like this nowadays. There's not a lot of movies that really just take three hours to tell this you know mythological story that is beautifully shot and we don't mind spending 10 minutes on a scene with no dialogue and mm-hmm. you know it's just unusual to see to see things like that nowadays and so i i really enjoyed watching it again in that regard and um the music is incredible i know it's something that people talk about this movie all the time you know based on the music as well but it's it it really it's a really great example of how a character's theme can uh, really usher in that character every time it shows up in the movie. And we've talked about that a little bit, but it's, you know, I mean, you, you'll never forget these themes. So once mm. you watch this movie, it's like they're completely associated with their characters and yeah. with the moments that they are wrapped up in. And it's really interesting watching it again, seeing which themes come in for which parts. And you're like, oh, the, in their, in their, perception in the filmmaker's perception this is who's controlling the scene yeah. you know this is who yes. the scene is about yeah. and i think looking at it from that perspective is really interesting and i just yeah it's a wonderful film and it's one that i would always recommend as one of the greatest westerns yeah that the, the music i mean yeah that's one of the most exhausted points with like any leone film mm-hmm. uh, uh, because morricone i mean what a what a master i mean yeah. You, legend you, yeah i mean legend. we we even yeah. did uh christy ben and i did an episode on state of grace and mm-hmm. just how the music is subtle but morricone's like melancholic score is yeah. about kind of that 
another kind of eulogy aspect to a time period where the gangsterism is ushering out like and, yeah. and how it's highlighting that and and what i like about this f- the, the use of music here is is that yeah those leap motifs that that are are kind of defining characters but uh, you know a cl- that cluing into people on on who who is favored in the scene or mm-hmm. who who is in control who who is being emphasized it it really just it it shows you that not only morricone understood kind of the characters that they were crafting in this story but that that Leone knew how to use them as kind of this soundscape, uh, like this this uh, perfect use of soundscape through the film, mm-hmm. knowing when to use music, when not to, when to heighten one character or the other. It's a brilliant, uh, you know, uh, juggling act, uh, yeah. especially with four characters who are so prominent. Yeah, uh, one of my favorite moments to talk about, like the how he uses music, is uh, I will never ever forget in Cheyenne's theme there's a moment where it pauses yes. because the character in <laughs> yes. the film pauses and realizes something. And it's like that break is even in the soundtrack version of it. So when they would play it at Arclight in the lobby music, I would be walking around whistling Cheyenne's theme. And I knew exactly when that mm-hmm. pause was because it's like, it's so, yeah, it's, in, it's, it's, so it's, it's a, a good part. tension of the music. Cause it's like, it, Yes, yeah. and it's used <laughs> so powerfully in his death. It is like I mean, again, it's I mean, it's a fun theme. It's not. It's, but in that moment, is it is unexpectedly emotional mm-hmm. to have it yeah. suddenly yes. do its pop out, and you're just like, and you know, you aren't even looking at Cheyenne when it happens. You're looking. You're, at you're not allowed to. You're not yeah. allowed to. He's asked us not. He's asked, he's asked not to harmonica, but he was. Yeah. I mean, really us. Yeah, yeah he's not asked the audience not to watch him while he dies, and so you know through the music the moment he dies. You're not even looking at him. I mean, it's incredible. It is kind of an interesting thought because he really is the character that the audience's perspective is through mm-hmm. for the yeah. entire film. He's the one that's piecing together the plot. He's got a lot of dialogue. Like, you know, yeah. yeah, Harmonica knows what's going on. He's the, yeah. He has a total handle on it, but he's not sharing. Frank is kind of in the middle. I mean, he's got his. he's got a handle on a few things, but he's still trying to figure out who Harmonica is. Uh, Jill just wants to go home and <laughs> Jason Robards is the only character that's really trying to figure out what's he's actually like us. happening. So yeah, he's, 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 he's in the dark. He's yeah. it together and, and we get to understand what's happening as he does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I also like the use of the music at the end uh, that, that, that hit with his death. Mm-hmm. Not only is it the end of his theme where he falls, but right after the swelling of, of Carnali's yeah. motif comes in kind of emphasizing again that she is the symbol of the way forward like th- th- mm-hmm. that he this these these men have played out their tunes mm-hmm. and now here comes the what what we're going to be left with is that final encompassing theme of of the of bringing in the new age and yeah, it, yeah harmonica it, doesn't have his harmonica anymore no he's yeah he's, he's put, put he doesn't need it no yeah. again like he yeah. he has fulfilled his duty and uh even though she she is as enthralled as i'm sure a lot of us would be in attractive nature to charles bronson like she is kind of has that hope of wanting to be with that character mm-hmm. because I mean, who who wouldn't want to be? I mean, there's something because of that that, that mythological grandiose stature of a character. You you ha- can't help but be uh, you know attracted to it. But uh, you know, Robards has even more. I think Josh mentioned it in our, in our break though uh, that he he warns her to that you can't get caught up in that. You have to. He'll just come in and move on. And and yeah. he knows not. And, and Bronson knows not to get involved either. 
And his last line to Jill is, you know, she's like, will you ever come back? And he says, someday. And it's like, you know, when he's needed again, he'll be back. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. like when, when the old ways are needed again, he'll be back. But right now, he has to go. He has Move to on. go. Yeah, and he has to bear, bury the past, uh, literally, with yeah. uh, with good old Cheyenne uh, carrying him on the horse. Josh, hmm. I wanted to give you an opportunity. Any, any last uh, ideas, thoughts, and uh, summations to our conversation today and uh, in about Once Upon a Time in the West? I mean... Nothing too grandiose, but I think it's interesting. In I mentioned earlier, I read that interview with the director of photography of this film. It's really interesting that as much as, you know, I'm a DP, so I tend to give DPs more credit for the look of things. Sure, yeah. Um, when uh, when I'm talking film, uh, listening to this guy, he sounds like a total workhorse and is just like he wanted to go home every day. And, <laughs> and it was really Leone that developed this visual style it tr- mm. truly is his vision and his style that this guy just made happen which i think is really interesting and it we've been speaking to his craft especially when it comes to this movie and how uh how just good he a- is as a filmmaker uh, but he is a true craftsman and this movie just really shows it i one of the things that was interesting in that interview that i also read was that he w- did a lot of takes he was n- he was notoriously a perfectionist mm-hmm. uh, and would do things over and over and over again. And he said the DP said there were times where Leone would say, give me a 20 centimeter dolly move. And the DP's like, no one's going to see that. What the hell? Like, what do you mean? And he would do like 25 and Leone would go, no, 20 centimeters. And they would do it over and over and over again until he got it right. And then he said when he would watch the dailies, he was like, oh, he does know it. Like he it did make a difference. He mm-hmm. saw that he could see it on the film. So I think it's, um, it's just wonderful to pick apart his movies and think about it that way because they, you know, spaghetti Westerns don't get a lot of credit for being crafted pieces of film. Mm-hmm. They, yeah, yeah. they come across as, you know, low budget and over stylized and a little schlocky and things like that. But there's in that there's an opportunity for real craftsmanship. And I think that's why Leone's, really stood the test of time as opposed to some of the other directors of that period. Absolutely. No, there's something unique that he was able to tap into. And it's all kind of a filtering of his, um, his influence, his appreciation and his love for cinema, for the Western Mm -hmm. in particular. And that's why, you know, I mean the, the other, uh, four of his Westerns are not on this season. Actually, one of them was supposed to be, I was going to kind of have a conversation on fistful of dynamite, Duck you sucker, but it got moved to a heist season that I'm working on and Isn't crafting. Isn't that kind of like a sequel to this? Like it's supposed to be three so, different time periods. Well, it, it's it's, it's a, a trilogy. trilogy. So it's a yeah. Once Upon a Time trilogy. Once Upon yeah. a Time in the West, Duck You Sucker, and Once Upon a Time in America, mm-hmm. his last film, and the and uh, which which he actually he was trying to work on at this point before he got offered Once Upon a Time in the West. He was it was called The Hoods and. Uh, he was crafting it with uh, Paramount Pictures, and then they offered him this offer to do the Western, and so he, he couldn't he, he relished the opportunity to work with Henry Fonda, so he had to. But, uh, you know, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, few dollars more, fistful of dollars. I mean, th- there's th- those had to happen in order to craft this language and perfect it, but uh, Once Upon a Time is really the, 
the pristine encapsulation, pristine filtering of that learned quality. And uh, mm-hmm. there's something so perfect about it. It's so American in veneer and facade in its superficiality of, of costuming and, and the use of Monument Valley. But it, there's something really subversive at its, at its uh, undercurrent. There's something revisionist about this cr- critique that he's giving the symbols that this uh, understanding that there, it's a time that's to be lauded but also left behind and and that there's something about that that's going to filter through this entire season where we're going to drift into more romanticized idealist chapters of this genre but also some dark revisionist uh, existential interpretations and uh, through throughout this season it's going to come back to this film and how this film funneled and fractured a lot of our assumptions of the west and uh, there's something so remarkable about its achievement so remarkable about its stature as a film uh, and that's why I wanted to start the season off with it and that's why I wanted to have a panel discussion on all three of you thank you so much for doing this this was uh, a great conversation i had a great time i hope you all had a great time yes um yeah uh josh josh b carter yeah. is the website um uh, instagram it's all socials yeah all socials uh cinematographer i just worked with you yeah we one. did we worked on a short and i hope i didn't get in your way too much <laughs> <laughs> I was actually lamenting the other day because uh, uh, you do you know Dan Bauer? Uh, he's yeah. Been on, yeah. So Dan Dan was like, "How'd it go?" And I'm like, "You know, uh, I was the AD, and uh, I think everyone could tell I wasn't that great at it." Um, <laughs> and and he's like, uh, "He goes, you notice when there's a there's a bad AD?" And I'm like, "I know. I think everyone could tell." I said, "But I did help Josh set up stuff, and I hope I." You helped him out you, pretty well yeah you, you were fine you you weren't destructively bad <laughs> sometimes an, an overzealous ad or an ad that th- takes on too much responsibility can tank a set way faster than an ad that just says i'm gonna let the crew I, do their thing here's the thing i i'm actually better at and maybe it's because people know me and when i make a request when they know me that when i'm like hey quiet on set be quiet or i look at you they actually listen but when it's people who don't know me and they don't know that I actually want them to be quiet, they tend to keep talking. And it was tough to uh, control some mm-hmm. some of the creakiness and yeah. uh, and the talking within within the shooting set. Uh, and it, it you well, know it's had a lot going on in a very small space. Yeah, but it, but, I, <laughs> but I was like I was like at least I didn't. Uh, hopefully, I just didn't get in his way and I, I did things okay. And uh, but but it was it was a good time. It was good working with you. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was great working with you yeah. as well. It was a it was a good, good little day. Yeah, it was fun. I, I hadn't been on set in a long time, so it's it was uh, it was an awakening sort of thing for me. Uh, Christy, editor, yeah. um, yes. just you you have well at the uh, by the time this comes out, you might have more out. I was but say I but will, uh, I will. but I know you got next on Hulu, uh, Fox. I mean, but but it's on Hulu and people can watch that. Yeah, you can watch uh, next on. Hulu, which came out uh, fall of 2020. And then um, by the time this airs, you'll be able to watch 
season two of Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. And see some episodes uh, edited by Christy. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, uh, I mean, Josh and Christy are probably the most professional people we've had on the show. So I'm glad they were here together. <laughs> we're all pros. And all then pros. there's me. And then there's Ben, who's <laughs> an actor, but you've, made, but you've done some Kyle. good. You, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. You, you actually do stuff. I don't do anything. I sit here and talk. <laughs> you podcast. <laughs> I podcast, but I mean that's not. I mean it's 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 almost glorified verbal masturbation. So you know, it's, <laughs> it's, well, we need the little people, Kyle. Thank so you, just... thank you. I, I I like being the little person. Well, you were great in this movie, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. thank you. I, yeah. I got shot. It's my a good my small suspenders role. got shot. They were damaged. Uh, <laughs> they were. But uh, but no, did Ben. You get ben, to keep you, the suspenders. <laughs> I did get to keep the suspenders. They're somewhere. Uh, ben, no, you act, and you you've been on some like uh, some shows and and stuff like that. A long time ago. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, but, been but, some stuff but it's quarantine, there. so yeah. Yeah. that that's what's going on. But but uh, Ben, thank I, you for joining. I am well. going to be on a lot of episodes of this, so tune in for my es- episodes, especially. Yeah, yeah. No, he, he's going to be on Hello. a bunch. Actually, you were on the most of noir yep. of any any individual guest, uh, and I think I think your intent is to continue that trend uh, yeah. is from w- Give our conversation all of them that <laughs> that you need Kyle, right? so. well you're, you're on the you're on the this one i know you're gonna i'm be already on, the, on three on this you're, so. on, you're already on three or i'm on recorded. one <laughs> <laughs> no nah, i mean we're not recording in order but yeah. i do have a, a template for what but you are gonna be on the finale so, yeah. so you're gonna be on the opening and the finale two so. years in a row yeah or two seasons two seasons in a row, in a row. <laughs> yeah um, feels like a year because it's been so long right? yeah who's well, no, I think yeah, Katie's gonna have been on all the finales. Yeah, she's gonna be on the nice. the, the uh, she's gonna be on Unforgiven. She'll be in Chinatown, oh, and uh, so she's uh, she was on Night of Living Dead. So yeah, so, so all the finales. She's well, got a good agent though. She's got she, <laughs> yeah. She has connections <laughs> yeah. to the show. Um, so <laughs> I know I'm like I have secondary connections, and I don't get to be on Unforgiven. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, all three of you, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, just so everyone knows, you can probably hear the plane that's going on. Yeah, we f- we we did this outside because we wanted to have like an in-person social distance conversation. And I and and I I, I don't know about you, but I actually think it like opens it up, and it's it's yeah. it's really fun to do it uh, in person and see people and actually like be be human beings again. You know, it's yeah. it's yeah. it's a rare time. But I thank you all three of you. This was a great conversation. And for those listening, thank you for joining. I know movies and you don't. That's with me, your host. Kyle Brule, and we'll see you later.